So we're looking again at our part two of our targeted training. We'll do a little bit of review, but there's a a company that was training its employees on certain aspect of the business, and they hired a trainer, and this, he was a little bit sarcastic. So this sarcastic trainer stood up in front of the class, and he said, are there any idiots in this room? If there are, would you please stand up? And he stood there for a long time. Was, the room was really quiet. So finally, um, one employee in the back rose to his feet. The trainer's a little bit shocked, and he says, tell me, sir, why are you, do you consider yourself an idiot? And he said, well, actually I don't, but I hated you seeing, seeing you stand up there all by yourself. And so we looked at, uh, in that concept of training, that, that we, that the, 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 the New Testament word uh, that's used for the church is a called out ones, an assembly. And as Christians, God wants us to engage the cultures in active deployments. So we come together, we, we worship together, we train together, and then we are deployed. We assemble on Sunday to hear the word of the Lord, then we're sent out into the world to work for the kingdom of God by loving others and sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so our assemblies should, uh, in some aspect, when we gather together, either on Wednesday nights or on Sunday mornings, uh, some element of training so that we're preparing ourselves to be able to share the gospel. And uh, and so that's kind of the tack that this uh, author has been taking. Um, And so we proclaim the gospel uh, usually in two pretty distinct ways through performing deeds of service, because Christians have a rich tradition of performing uh, service to the others in the name of Jesus, and so that will gain, sometimes gain them a hearing, um, hospitals and, and uh, all sorts of organizations that help uh, the poor and the needy. And so in meeting the physical needs of the people in our community, we are actively demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ to them. But we also address people's spiritual needs by proclaiming the truth of Christ. And so we have these two ways to do it. So we are to proclaim the truth, truth of Jesus Christ. We're also to guard and have been given the roles of, of guarding that truth. And so um, the author uh, of the book, Mr. Wallace, was a, uh, by profession, he was in the police, uh, the law enforcement service. And so their motto is to serve and protect. And he said the best way for us to do that is to stop teaching and to start training. And so what he means by that is is that the unpreparedness sometimes that we see in the church can be addressed um, by moving from merely teaching and only teaching to, to training. So it would be like, it'd be like, um, like reading, reading a book about martial arts or watching a video about martial arts and actually getting out on the mat with, a, with somebody and putting what you've learned into practice. There are some things you can't know until you, until you do them. And... Uh, and so teaching is focused on imparting knowledge, but training is focused on preparing for the challenge. Second um, Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we have to take our, what we've been taught and find ways to practice it, to train in it, to put it into practice, what we've learned so that we can be ready for what lies ahead. So that's kind of the tact that, that he's taken in this section of the book that we're going through. And he uses this um, acronym as kind of an outline to help us remember. So we are to train. We are to test, to challenge each other in order to expose weaknesses. And so a, um, you know, a boxer will, will get into a ring and he'll spar with somebody, and, and, and so his coach will watch him 
And he'll see, okay, you need, you need to do this because you're leaving yourself vulnerable to this kind of attack or that kind of attack. So we challenge each other to expose our weaknesses so we know where we need to, uh, to shore ourselves up. Ours for require to expect more from each other than we sometimes think we can handle. Sometimes, you know, I think that this, this book probably need to give it to Nick, our youth pastor, and, and kind of help him see if, you know, work with him about maybe working through this with the youth because um, we sometimes think that, that, that young people, elementary age, high school age people can't handle, can't do, can't, can't comprehend as much as, as we'll, we don't give them enough credit. They can, they can handle a lot more. They can do a lot more than what sometimes we think. So we need to require more of them. And I was thinking, um, you know, you know I teach, teach Sunday school all the time, and, and sometimes it's very difficult because you never really know how much is being retained because I never give a pop quiz, never, never test, never in any way determine how much is being retained. And, and uh, unfor- unfortunately, I, I think if I decided to start doing that, my class would dwindle, so I don't, ha- I don't have a whole lot of incentive uh, to, to, to up the flames a little bit. But sometimes I wonder how much, you know, we come and we come and we listen and we listen, but unless we look at it from training, how much of it do we really retain? How much of it can we uh, put into practice at another time? We're to arm ourselves, we're to learn the truth, how to articulate it. That'd be part of what we go over tonight. We're to involve and deploy into the battlefield of ideas, involve ourselves in that, and to nurture, to tend our wounds, and model the nature of Jesus Christ. So we'll go over these last three, arm, involve, and nurture tonight. So to arm ourselves. Uh, One way that, um, excuse me, this is a little bit of review. Step one, test. We'll get to to arms. Test. We, We looked last time at one way that Wallace suggested that we could uh, test ourselves is to watch debates between uh, atheists and Christians. And so these guys up here that you see at the top there, they're like the, the, they're called the four horsemen. Um, They are the most prominent, except for the guy on the far, far right, he's since passed. Um, But they are like the most vocal, um, aggressive atheists right now, in in, in our time right now. So to watch videos from these people so that we can, we can see what's laid out, what the arguments are against them, and then pause it before the, before the other debater comes up to give their answer and say, okay, now, if, if I was in this debate, how would I answer that? Um, then there's a uh, suggested in the book a forensic faith readiness review, which is a seven-question survey that would that give yourself three minutes per question, and you try to figure out, okay, these are the, these are the most commonly uh, articulated objections against Christianity, how would I do this? Say I went out to lunch with somebody and they asked me this question. I've got three minutes uh, to answer their question. What would I say? And then you can, you can take the test and find articles that look at each question at forensicfaithbook.com if you want to follow through with that. So we looked at that. Then we looked at require. It's um, a quote here from the author, uh, J. Warner Wallace. We're capable of much more than we typically require of ourselves as believers. The young people in our midst are also far more capable than we typically believe. Yet when it comes to our expectations in church, we seldom require or challenge ourselves to engage the material with passion, and we rarely express the need for training or set a goal. We need to raise the bar and require more than ever before. So I think that that this is true, but this is also one of those things that um, is sometimes difficult to tackle because... Um, you know, it's like, like how? You know, we look at some of the things we could do. How do we challenge ourselves? You know, many times we're not interested in, in that. We've got a lot of other things we're doing. 
we got our work, we got our home, we got our family. So this would be just like, oh my gosh, one more thing to do. But it can be done incrementally. You can pick, pick one topic. Say, I'm going to take one topic this year and I'm going to pick one book or one article or one website that I'm going to go through, say evidence for the resurrection. And say, I'm going, to, I'm going to make myself, to the best of my abilities, familiar with the evidence for the resurrection. And if you have to, you know, we, we carry little computers. I don't have my nomates in my office. We carry all, little computers in our pockets all the time now, most of us, that we can easily uh, open up the notes app and make notes of it. So somebody says, uh, it's Easter time and, and, and you're watching television. Inevitably, History Channel will put something on about Easter, debunking Orthodox belief in Easter. So sees that, and then for your friend at work, when you're at lunch, says, hey, did you step and see that thing about Easter? It said that Jesus just, he just passed out. He didn't really die. He just passed out on the cross. So you could pull your phone out. You could look that part up that you've made little notes on and say, well, here's why that that really doesn't hold water when you look at it closely. I mean, just, uh, just the other day, I can't remember if I saw it on television or if I read it in a, in, a, in a paper or something. It was like within the space of a paragraph, somebody, they made like three, three big errors in, in biblical accuracy. I know what it was. It was... Um, it was on the History Channel. It was about, like, the forgotten books of the Bible. And they were like, you know, back in the first century, the church got together and, and decided to exclude these other uh, books because they didn't fit with what the church wanted to do. And that's, that's not the case at all. We, we've talked about that here several, several times. So require more of ourselves than what we're requiring right now, even if it's just a little step. I mean, what's your doctor tell you? You know, you go to your doctor and he says, you need to get some more exercise. I want you to go out and run a marathon. No, they say, uh, you know, Take the stairs instead of the elevator. Uh, walk for 10 minutes a day. Uh, so they usually start, start small. So we can do the same thing in training ourselves in this way. So that's a little bit of review. So now we're going to look at the third step to arm ourselves. So saying that Christians should arm themselves today can sound a little bit provocative. You know, all of, with all the church shootings and things like that, you see a lot of uh, heat out in the culture of churches. You know, say, if, you, if somebody asks you, would you all do your church service the other day, so we talked about arming ourselves. They would immediately think, oh, they're going to start carrying guns. You know, they're going to have open carry in the church. So it can sound a bit provocative. So it's, it's really important that we be sure what we're battling against. And so we're going to, if you want to follow along, we're going to look at two, script, two quick scriptures. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So it says not flesh and blood means not against other human beings, although other human beings are sometimes the agents of the dark forces. But we're not ultimately wanting to, um, to drive out unbelievers or to imprison unbelievers, but we are to, to battle against the forces that stand behind unbelief and we do that through the truth. So the other one is 2 Corinthians 10. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So it's basically saying the same thing in a slightly different way, that we are not um, 
to besiege other cities, like, like go down to, to maybe New Orleans or Las Vegas, some pagan, what we consider a pagan city, and say, we're going to go in here, we're going to round everybody up, we're going to put them into concentration, concentration camps and make them all Christians by f- force baptizing them and force feeding them the communion. But no, we, we can destroy arguments and opinions raised against the knowledge of God. So that's what we're doing. Uh, Warner Wallace says, when it comes to equipping ourselves as Christians, the truth is our most effective tool we need to know the truth and how to use it. Know the truth and how to use it. So we are to arm ourselves with a knowledge of the truth because the devil operates with lies, lies and deceit. We know that from looking at the book of Genesis. He didn't go in and bite uh, Eve and poison her with, with venom, but he spit or spoke venom and poisoned her mind, poisoned her thought process and deceived her. And deceived Adam as well. So when we think about this, when we think about preparing ourselves and training ourselves and arming ourselves, you have to think of it, um, you know, kind of interesting that we were talking some about illnesses. Um, so an analogy is that we are to, instead of isolating ourselves from challenge, from con- potential uh, argument, from conflict, from the world, we are to uh, inoculate ourselves to it. We are to, to give ourselves a dose uh, of the poison, so to speak, so that we in turn can develop antibodies, so we, we learn the, what they say, so that we can speak against it. So he says that in order to prepare himself and those he trains, he engages challenges from aggressive opponents by addressing the claims of the opposition directly and examining the most hostile atheistic claims he can find. And so what he does to prepare himself, what he suggests that we do to prepare ourselves, is to not take on um, uh, softball questions, but to, to find the, the, the strictest, the hardest, the most um, aggressive opponents, look at what they're saying, and so how would we answer that? And so he says he does this, he's talking specifically here about um, high school students, to inoculate his students rather than isolate them, because he doesn't want their first exposure to these things to be when they are um, in the university setting. And so, you know, the, 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 um, the usual... A good analogy for this, one we might readily think of, is when the Europeans first came over to North America and or South America. Uh, They came into the indigenous populations there who, because they had been isolated from the rest of the world, had not been exposed to certain uh, commonplace diseases that was in Europe, that were in Europe, and so they had no, their, their bodies had no way of resisting those diseases, and so many of them died because of that, um, and so any time that we want to be inoculated against a particular disease, that doctors will take a, a weakened or a dead strain of that, put it in us, and our body will respond as if it's alive and will create the antibody so that it will be in our system so that when we encounter the live virus, we won't be overcome by it. And so in a similar way, uh, for our young people, specifically what he's talking about here, is that by, by, by exposing them in a safe environment, to the most stringent arguments that they might expect to find in the university setting, then, then they will be able to resist those. Because if you just wait until they get there, and, they, and then their professor stands up and begins to openly contradict everything that they know, and they have no answer for it all, uh, then they're going to think, I, I've been taught you know, things that can't, can't hold it. And so they make them very vulnerable at that point. And, uh, and I think, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in college, um, so what I've heard is that it's, it's a lot different now than it was when I was in college, which was, you know, 30 years ago. 
um, I don't remember a lot of open challenge to, to Christianity, um, but I had a friend who took some, some college courses, and, and he was saying it's, it's you know, it's, it's even classes that don't pertain to it, the professors will many times bring it, bring it up and talk about it in a, in a, in a, in a rejecting manner. It's almost like they're, they're setting out to, um, uh, to set the tone for the class. And so, uh, and, and, and our youth pastor, Nick, his, he already does this. He already does this in other, in other venues where he looks at the different arguments of, of different avenues of attack and is training our young people. I need to probably see if he's looked at this book just, just to see if he might find it useful to, to inoculate ourselves so that we're not, our body, our, our minds are not vulnerable to these foreign ideas and they don't come to us as if we've never heard them before. So a, um, a personal example of this I'll use for myself is that, um, you know, growing up in church had always been taught, you know, earth was made in six days, seventh day God rested, um, that was never really, you know, challenged in the church. It was just, it was accepted. Um, I went to school before, I don't need, you know, once again, just kind of going by, by an old memory here. I don't remember evolution being aggressively taught when I was in elementary or high school. It may have been mentioned, but I don't remember it being aggressively taught. In college, um, evolution is so assumed at that level, at the level of higher education, that not accepting it is seen as being, you know, unenlightened, ignorant, and superstitious. And so um, it's in all of the, t- any textbook you look at, anything. And it's the same way when you watch, like, the, like the nature shows. Uh, it, routinely, they will, they, will, they will show an animal, they will show a certain behavior, and they will say, evolution has produced this. They don't produce any evidence that evolution produced that. They don't, they just, it's all just assumed. Um, and so... If it was that way back then, it's probably even worse now. And uh, so I, I did a little digging up to kind of see, you know, where, where is there any numbers that kind of back up my suspicion here. So I found this from a, a 2012 uh, story on uh, National Public Radio. They were referring to a recent Gallup poll that I think was done in 2009. It's talking about, you know, what the acceptance of evolution as one moves up higher in the, um, in the education levels. So uh, 21% of people with a high school education um, or less, less than a high school education, believed in evolution. So one-fifth of the people that were high school or below accepted ev- evolution. Uh, that number rose to 41% for people with some college attendance, 53% for college graduates, and 74% for people with a postgraduate education. So the overwhelming majority of people who have a postgraduate education, a master's degree or higher, um, accept evolution as fact. So, so the higher the evoca- education level, the more likely one is to accept evolution as fact. So you can see we're in that, um, in that atmosphere. Even if a person, even if a student didn't quite accept it, wasn't quite sure about it, they have no motivation to voice that or to any way contradict the, the status quo because it's going to put them on the line. Um, it, could put their, um, it could put their grade in a class on the line. Let's say they had a biology class and they, they're given a topic to do and they decide to choose, or I'm going to write about um, you know, creation versus evolution. I mean, their professor's liable to flunk them for even bringing that up. So, so most of the time, I just didn't want to think about it when I was in, in university. I kind of had um, what they call a... Um, um, can't remember what they call it, of two minds about something. So over here I had my faith, 
over here I had my uh, engineering education, and I just didn't let them blend over very much. I didn't openly accept evolution, but I didn't openly reject it either. I kind of like, I'm just not going to make a decision about this. I'm going to be agnostic about it. Didn't really want to think about it. But then um, I bought a book called Darwin on Trial. And Darwin on Trial is written by Philip Johnson, and he is an, uh, a lawyer. And he looked at the evidence for evolution and said, okay, does, does it, when you look at this, does it support the claims that it makes? And so he pointed out its weaknesses. And this kind of, he's, he's kind of the, um, he's kind of what you might call the, the, um, the grandfather or the godfather of, of the evolution creation debate from the, from the creationist side, the intelligent design side. He's like the uh, point of the wedge. He got it going and then all these people filed in behind him. So then one of the next ones I read was called Darwin's Black Box. And this was written by a, um, a biochemist. Uh, and, um, and so back when Darwin wrote his stuff, back in the 1800s, no one had a good knowledge of what cells do. They thought they were, you know, the smallest little units. And they just kind of thought they were like a blob of protein, some little discrete unit. Uh, didn't know anything about it. But then as... as Science progressed, and, and the ability to observe, observe cellular function increased, and, and microscopes and, and uh, radio, radioscopes got better and better where they could look smaller and smaller. They found that each little cell is a, is a little mini factory of its own with, with things in it that all these processes way more complex than what anybody originally thought. And so Michael, excuse me, yeah, Michael Behe, his contribution was the... the what he called irreducible complexity. It's that, that when you have such a complex system, and if you remove any one part of this system, the whole system fails, then how does that build up one step at a time? And so he used the example of the mousetrap. It's not like you start with a block of wood and you catch a couple mice, and then you add a, uh, a hammer to it, and it catches a few more mice, and you put a spring on it, and it catches a few more mice. It's like, no, no, it, it either all there and it all functions, or it's not there and it doesn't function. You remove any one part, so it's hard to see how something as complex, uh, as, simply, as simple as a mousetrap could not evolve over time. How could something as complex as our cellular system evolve over time? And one of the most interesting ones was blood clotting. Um, there are, I think he said, 17 different steps for your blood to clot. And if you remove one piece over here and the, the organism gets cut, the, the animal gets cut or the human gets cut, they'll bleed to death. If you remove this piece over here and they get cut, all the blood in their body will coagulate and they'll die. So it's very difficult to conjecture how could this possibly build up a piece at a time. It looks like it all has to function. If you remove any piece of it, it doesn't function. So it's a strong challenge. And then Michael, or excuse me, William Dembski uh, wrote No Free Lunch. And so these three guys, uh, just reading these three books, helped me in my own mind come to the conclusion that evolution, the, the claims of evolution cannot be supported by the evidence in the way that uh, you often see it. It's not so ironclad. And so that's why the debate is still going on today. <clears throat> so it's never been easier. The, the point is that we have more access to quality work on these kind of things and, it, and, and these other issues that we've ever had before. It's never been easier. It's never been easier to investigate the truth than it is right now. It wasn't like sometime in the past they had more information. We have more information and easier access to, to good information now than at any time in history. But with all of this, I feel like it's important to address a certain topic right now. Um, I'm sorry, I thought I had an extra slide in there. I guess I didn't. Oh, I know what I did. I put it on the wrong one. Um, 
we can answer everybody's objection to Christianity and they still not believe. We could, we could, we could bring the most diehard atheist in here, set him down, give him a reasonable, logical, believable answer to every objection he would raise. And he, he had no guarantee he would go out of here and say, oh, I get it now, I believe. Because it's not just a mental thing. And we know this because, um, number one, because people persist in unbelief even when you give them answers. But two, we are not just thinking creatures. Um, a lot of our uh, way that we do things is, is, is by our desires. And so a lot of times people will put their, their reason uh, at, the, uh, at the use of their desires. So they'll, they'll, have, they'll have something they want, and they'll find reasons to get what they want. They'll find reasons to, to be to logical, you know, to them will make perfectly logical sense that this is why I should get what I want. And so when we think about that and we look at, out into the world, we shouldn't come away with the idea that, oh, if we can just come up to the answer to every objection, then that's going to somehow open up the floodgates and people are just going to come rushing in because that's not merely what the problem is. It's a heart problem, not only an information problem. And so because of that, Sometimes people say, well, well, okay, then if that's the case, then why do we need to bother to learn this stuff? If, it, if this is not going to convince anybody, we want people to believe in Jesus Christ. If this is not going to convince anybody to believe in Jesus Christ, then why do we need to bother to answer this and to know this? We can just simply um, wear a John 316 t-shirt. If somebody asks us who's John and what's 316 mean, we could tell them, and that'll be enough. Well, I'm going to show you a video clip of Lee Strobel. Um, he is. He wrote the case for Christ, and there's a movie on Netflix now uh, about his, his his journey. If you want to look look on there, um, the case for Christ. Uh, he was an investigative reporter that worked for the Chicago Tribune, I think. And uh, his wife became a Christian, and so he set out to 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 get the information to undermine her faith. And in the course of doing that, he could not come up with enough evidence to overturn her believing in that. And so, but. Still then, wasn't, that wasn't in and of itself enough to make him believe until he was challenged on it. So I'm going to show you, he, Lee Strobel, and he is interviewing uh, another uh, apologetic uh, philo- philosopher apologist named William Lane Craig about the importance of apologetics in general. I teach evangelism here at uh, HBU. That's my passion, and I use apologetics in the course of evangelism. But ultimately, I want to see people meet and know Jesus Christ personally. You have that same heart. Um, what about people that say to you, oh, you can't argue anybody into the kingdom of God. Um, apologetics, that's fine. It's a nice intellectual exercise, but it's never really going to bring anybody to faith. I would say, I think, a couple of things about that, Lee. First, I would say that the value of apologetics transcends and is far greater than your immediate evangelistic contact. One of the purposes of apologetics is to act as leaven in our culture to produce a cultural milieu in which people are open to the gospel when they hear it. If you allow the culture to drift into complete secularism, then what you will have is what you already have in Europe where the gospel can't even be heard as a reasonable option. People, to to ask them to believe in Jesus Christ is like asking them to believe in the tooth fairy or or leprechauns. It's that absurd. So apologetics is valuable not simply in evangelism, but for 
shaping the culture in such a way that when people hear the gospel, they can think of it as an intellectually viable option. So that even if people don't come to Christ because of the arguments, the arguments help to shape a cultural milieu in which the gospel can be heard as a viable option for them. And it gives them the intellectual permission to believe when their hearts are moved. That's good. Secondly, I would also say that apologetics is of tremendous value in the lives of Christians. Um, It will help us to preserve the youth of the church for the next generation. In high school and university, Christian students are assaulted intellectually with every manner of non-Christian philosophy conjoined with an overwhelming relativism. And if we do not train them in how to articulate and defend the Christian faith, they will become roadkill for that aggressive high school teacher or university professor who goes after their faith. So I think that training in apologetics is vital for the health of the church, for us as Christians. And then finally, thirdly, I do think apologetics is also useful in evangelism. Um, The fact is that we get emails every week from people who describe how they have either come to faith in Christ or have come back to faith in Christ after a period of rejection through having heard a debate or read a book uh, and their minds have been changed. And as a result, they've given their life to Christ. So the, the evidence simply doesn't support this motto, no one comes to Christ through arguments. The fact is lots of people do. So, so he hit on a, on a couple of things that we've already talked about, about you know, inoculating our students before they're subjected to this. <clears throat> and, um, and also the whole idea of um, you know, just culturally keeping Christianity as one of, of the things that is accepted by our culture. Now, I was thinking, of like, what, okay, what, what can we point to as an example of that? So I'm thinking of, of like, the Billy Graham Crusades, you know, that, that happened. Um, so Billy Graham would be talking to an, a stadium full of people who, admittedly, they're self-selected. They chose to come there, but, but they are a representation of, of our society to some degree. And he would say, he would hold up his Bible, and he would say, the Bible says. Most of the people out there, even if they weren't Christians, would still have some level of respect and accept some level of biblical authority. That the Bible is God's book, it is God's word. Even if they didn't know every bit of it, or they didn't accept it, there was just a general feeling that the, it, the Bible was an important book for life. And, but now, today... I don't know if that same thing can be said. If you say, talk to somebody, well, they, the Bible says. They're just as likely to look at you and say, that's just an old fairy tale that was written by, you know, a couple guys got together and decided to make all this up. So, so one of the reasons why we have to know apologetics is to just keep, to keep the general atmosphere around us at one where, where, where people don't view Jesus Christ, I mean, people always accept Jesus Christ as a historical figure. And there's more proof now than there ever has been, you know, that he was. But, but in the general population, people may not feel that way. They may feel like that, that he, you know, he is no more, that maybe they don't know, they, don't have, they have doubts. So by keeping this out there, we keep those kind of things alive. 
And then especially, you know, the whole idea of, of going, to, um, going to university where Christianity is going to be openly mocked. I, I, and I do think that, that we are right on the cusp of, of for, public, for public schools. I think it's already happening. It's just going to gain momentum of Christians deciding that uh, public schools no long, are no longer allies in, or even neutral in helping us maintain the next generation of Christianity. Uh, and so if that's the case, I think you're going to see more and more Christians either homeschooling their kids or putting them into Christian schools for the simple fact that, that so much time and effort is spent on educating uh, our children that to leave that into the hands of people who are hostile against our most treasured belief is detrimental uh, to our cause. Yes, I accidentally put it in there twice. I'm not going to make you walk, watch it twice. So our step number four is involved. I'm going to have to move a little quickly here. went a little longer than I thought. We can increase our personal growth as Christians in any ministry in our church overnight by simply putting on the calendar a hands-on event designed to turn our teaching and training. So if we said, next Wednesday night, we're going to go to the, down to the university uh, and we're going to go into, uh, we're going to go down there to, to uh, the assembly hall where they're having a, an open forum and we're going to go and we're going to engage people in the Christian faith. And we all decide to put that on our calendar. What do you think you'd be doing for the next week? You'd be flipping through, trying to find out, trying to, to memorize things. So that's what we said. By purpose, purposefully involving ourselves in these opportunities to be tested, we know how much time we need and we know what we need to prepare for. And so he gives an example from his own experience. He scheduled uh, for his youth group, scheduled yearly evangelistic trips to the University of California at Berkeley, one of the most liberal places on the planet Earth. And his group would go in, they would meet with atheistic uh, student groups, and they would have in speakers and thinkers who are atheists, and, and, and he would basically put his students in that situation so that they would, and he would know that they're going there, so they would familiarize themselves with the evidence for Christianity and other things. Another thing that he did was that they would go on evangelistic trips to Salt Lake City, Utah. So if you know anything about Salt Lake City, who are you going to run into in Salt Lake City? Mormons. And so they, instead of focusing on philosophy and things like that, they would focus on Orthodox Christians' teachings like the Trinity so they can engage the Mormons that they talk to on that level. And they would do this, want to do this so they'd be familiar with it, but also do it with a, with a, a demeanor of gentleness and respect. So um, real quick, I, when Carla and I used to go to the youth detention center, I mentioned this uh, like the very, one of the very first uh, times that I taught, um, Knowing I was going there caused me to prepare to teach Bible study. What I wasn't prepared for uh, was a young man who had been influenced by the Nation of Islam. And so the Nation of Islam is a, um, an African-American uh, group, splinter group, off of, and has its kind of own unique teachings. And so during one of our trips to the detention center, he came to our meeting, and like in the middle of the Bible study, he began to pepper me with these questions. And he would say, it was things like, why do you call Jesus Jesus when in the Greek alphabet there's no J? And... Uh, and why does Paul tell people they should remain slaves? Which you can imagine is a very sensitive topic when you know, 95% of the people in your audience are young black males. And, uh, and so I was not prepared to give an answer at that time. So, so knowing that, I had to like, look this stuff up. And so Wallace encourages us to, to purposefully involve ourselves in situations where we will be tested. Uh, so that we, when we do that, then we know what we've got to study for. But when we go do that, there's going to be times that, we, that, that we're going to be in interactions where we don't get the best of them. 
That's not necessarily our goal, but it's going to happen. Because there's a lot of heat in our culture right now. A lot of heat in our culture and on both sides. And many times discussions about religion deteriorate in the shouting matches or end up being about scoring points for our side, which is not what the Bible tells us. So we need to look at Peter's admonition more fully. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. <laughs> now, I've <clears throat> been finding a lot of negative examples out of my own life. Over at the old church when we were there, preparing, preparing for a youth service, you get a call. And the guy says, I, I just got a simple question about your website, if you don't mind, if you've got a minute to answer. Me. I see here that, um, that you all list that, that you believe in the Trinity. Yeah? And he says, well, what about, and he goes to this verse, and, and so it's kinda like a, it was kind of like a gotcha. And so what I, what I ended up figuring out was is that he was a Jehovah's Witness. He was like cold calling. He'd go to churches, he would, he would look up, he'd find the, he'd call that church and, and, then, and then use this catch-22 question, gotcha question. And so I tried to give an answer as best I could off the fly. And it ended up in a shouting match, and basically I said, hey, we won. <laughs> you know, Orthodox Christianity won. We're bigger than you. And uh, that's how I ended. Not a good way to end it, but uh, felt satisfying in the moment. But I wasn't giving it. With, I gave an answer, but I didn't necessarily do it with gentleness and respect. Um, but we've got to model this behavior for our children and grandchildren, be ready to help them respond in a Christian manner. It's not going to be uh, very helpful to them if they become... Uh, very well versed in all this, and, and, and they see it just as an opportunity to embarrass other people. That's not going to gain a hearing for the gospel if you become known as an as a intellectual bully and, and you just go around trying to make people look silly. Um, we, don't want, we don't want that. So if you'll stand with me, we will close in prayer, and uh, hopefully, hopefully your cars will start up and get good and warm quickly, and you can make it home. And... Uh, and spend the rest of the evening preparing yourselves for a long winter's nap. Heavenly Father, we know that ultimately only you can change the hearts and minds of people. Only you can shine the light of your grace to the inside of us so that we see the beauty of Jesus Christ and we acknowledge our need and we believe and repent. But Lord, you have also instructed us to go into the marketplace of ideas, go into... um, the lives that are around us, and to be uh, able to give um, a good account of ourselves, uh, Lord, in such a way that that adorns the gospel and doesn't detract from the gospel. So we ask, Lord, you'd help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.